Okay, today we will be reading through and commenting on liberal feminism, which is a chapter in Anuradha Gandhi's Philosophical Trends in the Feminist Movement. Foreign Language Press Audio has a free recording of the whole book. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, wherever. And then I'll link that in the show notes. But you can also get a PDF, free PDF, or purchase the paperback, which I always recommend doing to support their work from... Uh, the same place, Foreign Language Press. I'll link that all in the show notes. But this is an incredible book and, a, and actually a short chapter. I might do another chapter as well. The chapter on postmodernism is really interesting to me as well. Um, <clears throat> but what I'm going to do is I'm going to split this into three parts. The first part is basically I will read uh, a few pages and I'm, I'm, there are four sections that I'm going to make four comments on. The second part of this episode will be me just reading her critique. She has a section titled critique for each chapter and it's just, it's amazing. So I'm going to read, I'm just going to read without commenting uh, her critique. And then the third final part of this episode will be me reading through and then commenting on her six points of weaknesses. So she just has six really short. Some of them are literally like a single line. Um, They're weaknesses of liberalism excuse me, and I will be, I'll read them and then I'll make a short comment. All right, so let's go ahead and get to it. Liberal feminism. Liberal feminist thought has enjoyed a long history in the 18th and 19th centuries with thinkers as Mary Wollstonecraft, 1759 to 1797, Harriet Taylor Mill, 1807 to 1858, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, 1815-1902, arguing for the rights of women on the basis of liberal, philosophical understanding. The movement for equal rights to women, especially the struggle for the right to vote, was primarily based on liberal thought. Earlier liberal political philosophers, like John Locke, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who had argued for the rule of reason, equality of all, did not include women in their understanding of those deserving of equality, particularly political equality. They failed to apply their liberal theory to the position of women in society. The values of liberalism, including the core belief in the importance and autonomy of the individual, developed in the 17th century. It emerged with the development of capitalism in Europe in opposition to feudal patriarchal values based on inequality. It was the philosophy of the rising bourgeoisie. The feudal values were based on the belief of the inerrant superiority of the elite, especially the monarchs. The rest were subjects, subordinates. They defended hierarchy with unequal rights and power. In opposition to these feudal values, liberal philosophy advanced a belief in the natural equality and freedom of human beings. Quote, they advocated a social and political structure that would recognize equality of all individuals and provide them with equality of opportunity. This philosophy was rigorously rational and secular in the most powerful and progressive formulation of the Enlightenment period. It was marked by intense individualism. Yet, the famous 18th century liberal philosophers like Rousseau and Locke did not apply the same principles to the patriarchal family and the position of women within it. 
This was the residual patriarchal bias of liberalism that applied only to men in the market. End quote. Zyla Einstein. To comment. So, first, we see that liberal philosophy, before it's applied to the material realities and position of women, emerges out of the class struggles between feudal and capitalist class societies. Feudal philosophy believed that the position slaves, peasants, lords, and the monarchs, you know, kings and queens, were in, were divinely ordered and natural. But as the bourgeoisie accumulated more and more uh, economically and grew stronger, they came to believe that the world, as it was, was not divinely ordained, but feudally ordained. They were driven to increase their production and accumulation, but could not because of feudal laws and culture. And so, their philosophy was forged in the struggle to overthrow feudalism and become the new ruling class of property owners. They spoke of equality of individuals and equality of opportunity. But of course, their understanding of equality and personhood was deeply individualistic, and capitalist, as much as it was patriarchal and colonial. So, they sought a world of formal or legal equality among male capitalists, excluding women, the working class, and any particular group they deemed less than human. Back to the text. Mary Wollstonecraft belonged to the radical section of the intellectual aristocracy in England that supported the French and American revolutions. She wrote A Vindication of the Rights of Women in 1791 in response to Edmund Burke's conservative interpretation of the significance of the French Revolution. In the booklet, she argued against the feudal patriarchal notions about women's natural dependence on men, that women were created to please men, that they cannot be independent, Wollstonecraft wrote before the rise of the women's movement, and her arguments are based on logic and rationality. Underlying Wollstonecraft's analysis are the basic principles of the Enlightenment, the belief in the human capacity to reason, and in the concepts of freedom and equality that preceded and accompanied the American and French revolutions. She recognized reason as the only authority and argued that unless women were encouraged to develop their rational potential and to rely on their own judgment, the progress of all humanity would be retarded. She argued primarily in favor of women getting the same education as men so that they could also be imbibed with the qualities of rational thinking and should be provided with opportunities for earning and leading an independent life. She strongly criticized Rousseau's ideas on women's education. According to her, Rousseau's arguments that women's education should be different from that of men have contributed to make women more artificial, weak characters. Rousseau's logic was that women should be educated in a manner so as to impress upon them that obedience is the highest virtue. Her arguments reflect the class limitations of her thinking. While she wrote that women from the quote-unquote common classes displayed more virtue because they worked and were to some extent independent, she also believed that, quote, the most respectable women are the most oppressed, end quote. Her book was influential even in America at that time. Harriet Taylor, 
also part of the bourgeois intellectual circles of London and wife of the well-known utilitarian philosopher James Stuart Mill, wrote on the enfranchisement of women in 1851 in support of the women's movement just as it emerged in the U.S., giving stark liberal arguments against opponents of women's rights and in favor of women having the same rights as men, she wrote, quote, We deny the right of any portion of the species to decide for another portion, or any individual for another individual, what is and what is not their proper sphere. The proper sphere for all human beings, is the largest and highest which they are able to attain to, end quote. Nothing the significance of the fact that she wrote, quote, The world is very young and has but just begun to cast off injustice. It is only now getting rid of Negro slavery. Can we wonder it has not yet done as much for women, end quote? In fact, the liberal basis of the women's movement as it emerged in the mid-19th century in the U.S. is clear in the Seneca Falls Declaration of 1848. The declaration at this first national convention began thus, quote, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men and women are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these our life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, end quote. To comment. So, originally, bourgeoisie meant middle class in French. And it, uh, this group emerged as a class under feudalism, as did the proletariat, or the working class. Early on, the bourgeoisie were small property owners, and as they gained material power, they wanted free from feudalism. But their idea of freedom was freedom for individuals to possess and accumulate property, and formal freedom of opportunity, not necessarily a transformation of the conditions. So there was a serious class blindness, obviously. Um, individual workers were said to be equal in political power to individual bosses, landlords, and lenders. Liberalism's original, autonomous, free property-owning man excluded all women. And so the first wave of liberal feminism in the West during the 19th century sought recognition as equal individuals. Back to the text. In the next phase of the women's movement in the late 1960s, among the leading proponents of liberal ideas was Betty Frieden, Bella Ibzug, Pat Schroeder. Frieden founded the organization National Organization of Women, the acronym being NOW, in 1966. The liberal feminists emerged from among those who were working in women's rights groups, government agencies, commissions, etc. Their initial concern was to get laws amended which denied equality to women in the sphere of education, employment, etc., they also campaigned against social conventions that limited women's opportunities on the basis of gender. But as these legal and educational barriers began to fall, it became clear that the liberal strategy for changing the laws within the existing system was not enough to get women justice and freedom. To comment. And so the second phase of the women's movement, or particularly the liberal uh, strand of the women's movement in the late 1960s, is all about struggling for equal rights. 
you know, we want a world of equality of rights, particularly rights in education and employment. And so ultimately they believed that if women can have an equal playing field in the capitalist economy and with uh, an education with men, then men and women will no longer be unequals. So the name of the game is equality of opportunity. Give us the opportunity to compete, and that is a world without gender inequality. Back to the text. They shifted their emphasis to struggling for equality of conditions rather than merely equality of opportunity. This meant the demand that the state play a more active role in creating the conditions in which women can actually realize opportunities. The demand for childcare, welfare, health care, unemployment wage, special schemes for the single mother, etc., have been taken up by liberal feminists. The struggle for Equal Rights Amendment, ERA, has also been led by this section of feminists. The work of the liberal section among feminists has been through national-level organizations, and thus they have been noticed by the media as well. A section among the liberal feminists, like uh, Zyla Einstein, argue that liberalism has a potential as a liberating ideology, because working women can, through their life experiences, see the contradiction between liberal democracy as an ideology and capitalist patriarchy, which denies them the equality promised by the ideology. But liberalism was not the influential trend within the movement in this phase. To comment. And so the contradictions within the movement and within society transformed the liberal women's struggle from one of equal opportunity to one of equal conditions. The state needs to raise the floor for women in particular. The state needs to serve in the interests of women by expanding the welfare state and meeting needs for child care, health care, unemployment pay, right? Specific issues for mothers. Women can't compete as equals if they don't have the freedom to do so conditionally. And so the answer for this stage of the liberal strand of the women's movement is to better women's economic and social conditions through the hand of the state. All right. Now we're going to move on to our next section, and this section will simply be me reading Gandhi's critique. Let's begin. Liberalism as a philosophy emerged within the womb of feudal Western society as the bourgeoisie was struggling to come to power. Hence, it included an attack on the feudal values of divinely ordained truth and hierarchy, social inequality. It stood for reason and equal rights for all individuals, but this philosophy was based on extreme individualism rather than collective effort. Hence, it promoted the approach that if formal legal equality was given to all, then it was for the individuals to take advantage of the opportunities available and become successful in life. The question of class differences and the effect of class differences on opportunities available to people was not taken into consideration. Initially, liberalism played a progressive role in breaking the feudal social and political institutions, but in the 19th century, after the growth of the working class and its movements, the limitations of liberal thinking came to the fore. 
For the bourgeoisie that had come to power did not extend the rights it professed to the poor and other oppressed sections, like women or blacks in the U.S. They had to struggle for their rights. The women's movement and the black movement in that phase were able to demand their rights utilizing the arguments of the liberals. Women from the bourgeois classes were at the forefront of this movement, and they did not extend the question of rights to the working classes, including working class women. But as working class ideologies emerged, various trends of socialism found support from the active sections of the working class. They began to question the very bourgeois socioeconomic and political system and the limitations of a liberal ideology with its emphasis on formal equality and individual freedom. In this phase, liberalism lost its progressive role. And we see that the main women's organizations, both in the U.S. and England, fighting for suffrage, had a very narrow aim. It became pro-imperialist and anti-working class. In the present phase, liberal feminists have had to go beyond the narrow confines of formal equality to campaign for positive collective rights like welfare measures for single mothers, prisoners, etc., and demand a welfare state. And that wraps up our section of her critique. And now for the final section. These are six weaknesses uh, that Gandhi points out of liberalism. And I will note when I'm making my own comment. Weaknesses of liberalism. Number one, it focuses on individual rights rather than collective rights. And to comment real quick, I, you know, choice here is understood as the reason you know, for one's conditions and position in the world. And so if we're all equal politically, then all these claims about social inequality are baseless for liberalism's philosophy. Because again, we're all equal, free individuals. All right. Number two, it is ahistorical. It does not have a comprehensive understanding of women's role in history, nor has it any analysis for the subordination, subjugation of women. And to comment, so as historical materialists, liberal analysis completely evades the fundamental question of how women have historically related to the means of production and participated in the process of production. So what has been the class position of the masses of women? It doesn't matter to liberal feminism because we're all equal, free individuals. Number three, it tends to be mechanical in its support for formal equality without a concrete understanding of the condition of different sections or classes of women in their specific problems. Hence, it was able to express the demands of the middle classes white women from middle classes in the U.S. and upper class, upper caste women in India, but not those of women from various oppressed ethnic groups, castes, and the working, laboring classes. To comment, you know, liberals all the time will say Marxism is mechanical. Liberalism is what's mechanical. You know, it's one-sidedly opting for formal equality of choice on paper, thinking that that makes everyone equal, regardless of class, you know, regardless of colonization and race, regardless of even obvious wealth disparities. Absolutely absurd. Number four. It is restricted to changes in the law 
educational and employment opportunities, welfare measures, etc., and does not question the economic and political structures of the society which give rise to patriarchal discrimination. Hence, it is a reformist in its orientation, both in theory and in practice. To comment, and so it misunderstands the problem, right? And when you misunderstand the problem, your solutions are guaranteed to fail. Number five, it believes that the state is neutral and can be made to intervene in favor of women when in fact the bourgeois state in the capitalist countries and the semi-colonial and semi-feudal Indian state are patriarchal and will not support women's struggle for emancipation. This state is defending the interests of the ruling classes who benefit from the subordination and devalued status of women. To comment, states are class weapons. And under capitalism and colonialism, they are the weapons of the ruling class. And if the masses of women are subject to class society, that means the state will not be serving the majority of women. In fact, it means the state must be overthrown and seized by the working women, men, and non-binary people. And our final one, number six. Since it focuses on changes in the law and state schemes for women, it has emphasized lobbying and petitioning as the means to get their demands. The liberal trend most often has restricted its activity to meetings and conventions and mobilizing petitions calling for changes. It has rarely mobilized the strength of the mass of women and is in fact afraid of the militant mobilization of poor women in large numbers, to comment. And so liberal feminism is anti-proletarian, it's anti-working class, and it's anti-revolutionary. So liberal feminism is patriarchal and anti-women. And that's all I got for today. Hope you enjoyed it. Again, this is Liberal Feminism, a chapter in Philosophical Trends in the Feminist Movement by Anuradha Gandhi. And I may end up doing another chapter. We'll see. All right, friends. Thanks for listening. Uh, Do me a favor. Share the podcast with folks. Appreciate y'all. All right. And we will talk soon.